You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, the queen of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. I like that, the queen of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Well, you've earned the title. (laughs) I uh, curtsy to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, This is September 26th, 2021, and this is episode 138 of Lighthearted. This episode will feature two interviews. First, we'll be talking with Besida Cawthorn White of the Middle Peninsula African American Genealogical and Historical Society in Virginia about a new important historical marker that relates to a Virginia lighthouse. And then we'll listen to a conversation with Donald S. Murray, the author of an excellent new book on the lighthouses of Scotland. So summer is behind us. We're getting into the fall season. Here in New England, there are a lot of agricultural fairs this time of year. The Deerfield Fair here in New Hampshire is one of the oldest ones. It starts uh, this year on September 30th. And I've been invited to speak at the opening ceremony that morning, which uh, I'm honored to be invited to do that. So uh, what's happening for you this fall, Michelle? How's, how's school going for you? School is going well. We're in you know, a couple of weeks now having students in the building. Um, and tomorrow I start my second to last class to get my teaching certification. So I have a very busy fall coming up. That's fantastic. So you're at the middle school in Rochester, New Hampshire, and your 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 title has been what again? I'm a paraeducator. So I work with right. um, a small group of special ed students, and but yep. I also work, I work in a general education classroom. So I help all of the mm-hmm. students that need help. Sure, but you're uh, going to get the official title of teacher very soon, yes. right? Yes. That's a really exciting. Congratulations on that. Thank you. You're very welcome. I think that's just so so great that you've done that. So, Michelle, please help me tell everyone about our first guest today. Sure, Jeremy. This past July 17th, there was a standing room only crowd at the Deltaville Community Center in Virginia for the dedication of a historical marker sponsored by the Middle Peninsula African American Genealogical and Historical Society. Stingray Point Lighthouse once marked a dangerous shoal at the mouth of the Rappahannock River, more than two miles to the east of the new marker. In 1861, six enslaved men used the lighthouse, which was abandoned during the Civil War, as a safe house while waiting to catch a Union ship that would allow them to escape slavery. The 1858 Stingray Point Lighthouse, a cottage-style structure on a screw-pile foundation, was dismantled in 1965 and replaced by a modern, automatic structure. The Stingray Point Marina is now home to a full-size replica of the lighthouse. Our guest today, Besida Cawthorn White, is an activist, genealogist, and retired attorney, as well as the co-founder and president of the Middle Peninsula African American Genealogical and Historical Society. Among her many honors, Ms. White was recognized during Women's History Month in 2020 by the state of Virginia as an agent of change. It was a real pleasure speaking with Besida White about this new historic marker. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Besida Cawthorn White, who is the president of the Middle Peninsula African American Genealogical and Historical Society in Virginia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Besida. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, for having me. 
It's a pleasure. So I do want to talk about the new historical marker, but uh, I'm thinking that first it might be a good idea if you could uh, explain a little bit about what your organization is and does. Okay, I'd be happy to. Our organization is Middle Peninsula African American Genealogical and Historical Society. It's a group formed about 17 years ago to encourage African Americans in our region to research and document their family histories. And so when we say Middle Peninsula, it's a particular section of Eastern Virginia that is on the near the Rappahannock River. Um, and in between near the Rappahannock River and the Chesapeake Bay in Eastern Virginia. And so that's our group. Although we've often said that had we formed the organization after we learned some things, we probably would have given it a name that doesn't imply that it's purely Middle Peninsula because we really do represent the region which includes the Northern Neck mm -hmm. and other parts of Eastern Virginia. But okay. that's what we do uh, and we yeah. have people from all over the country are involved in our organization because they have roots in this area or um, they come to learn um, of the many experiences we've had that we share on a monthly basis in our meetings. So let's talk about the historical marker that was recently dedicated. First of all, can you tell us uh, the, the, the basic story? What is uh, commemorated in the historical okay. marker? The basic story is that in July of 1861, July 15th to be exact, six men who were enslaved in Middlesex County, Virginia, um, knowing that there was a Confederate Navy presence out in the Chesapeake Bay, went out one evening and hid out in the Stingray Point Lighthouse to flag down a Navy ship, in fact, the USS Mount Vernon, and they were taken aboard, they were sheltered. Um, the Navy had to figure out what to do with these refugees. What happened is, I don't know whether you know the full story, but in May of 1861, mm -hmm. somewhat similar thing had happened at Fort Monroe in Hampton. So uh, Fort Monroe, despite the fact that Virginia has seceded from the Union, Norfolk was under Confederate control, but Hampton and Fort Monroe were under, remained under control of the United States Army. And so that a General Benjamin Butler was the person in charge of Fort Monroe. And three men initially, followed by many, many others, presented themselves at Fort Monroe and said, we are afraid and this is what the Confederates are going to use us to do. Uh, to the United States government. Mm -hmm. And so uh, General Butler was trained as an attorney and he thought about how, what he could do not to return these men to their uh, enslavers under the Fugitive Slave Act. And so he developed a theory, contraband of war. So when it's war times and there's an instrumentality being used against you in war, then you have the right to seize that instrumentality. So General Butler saw these um, in formerly enslaved men as contraband and said, okay, he could keep them. And of course that opened the floodgates. Fort Monroe developed contraband camps and men, women, children poured into Fort Monroe. And so the word was out and we don't know how it traveled from Fort Monroe up the peninsula, but these men apparently knew that if they could reach that United States Navy ship, 
that mm -hmm. they would be in fact safe and would be free. And of course, what the Navy did was put them to work. They were sailors. They, by September, they were in the Navy and we've seen the payroll um, rep records. And so what's interesting is that's more than a year before black men were in the United States Army and almost two years before the United States colored troops that that was actually formed. So wow. it is, um, of course, the Navy apparently had always been more integrated than the Army. Well, this is a really, really fascinating history. So how was this brought to your attention, the particular story of involving well, the lighthouse? Actually, most of us had no idea. About a dozen or more years ago, one of our members, whose name is Davlin Talaferro, told us the story. And of course, you know, most folk in history, in, you know, grade school history learned about Stingray Point. And we learned about Stingray Point because we knew that Captain John Smith, you know, was associated with Pocahontas. Captain John Smith was stung by this ray and almost died. The native people, you know, medicated him and saved him. And so that place became known as Stingray Point. And that's what we associate with Stingray Point. So we knew nothing else until David Talaferro told us the story of her great-grandfather. So of those six men, um, David Harris, who was her great-grandfather, was one of them. And she said that she had always, all of her life, heard the story in her family oral history. What she had not known until she became a researcher was the importance of that Stingray Point action within the national narrative. And so, but she'd always known that, you know, David Harris freed himself by turning himself into the United States Navy. And so that's how we learned of the story. In fact, I guess it's about at least 10 years ago now that Davelin arranged a field trip for our group to go to uh, Deltaville, which is the area adjacent to the village adjacent to Stingray Point. And we had a chance to actually stand on the shore and look out at where the Stingray Point Lighthouse had been. I guess there's a modern light out there now. And then she arranged for us to also visit, um, there's a replica an exact replica of the Stingray Point Lighthouse that's been created a couple of miles away that serves as an office building. Yeah. So she arranged for us to visit that replica, actually go into it, go up on the, and I don't know the lighthouse term, but what I would call a balcony and up into the tower, if that's what it's called. But sure, um, yeah. so that's how we learned of this just really remarkable um, feat that these men were able to accomplish. So as you mentioned, there's a replica at the Stingray Point Marina. And was there any thought of uh, putting the historical marker there or maybe having additional signage there? Well, it's interesting that you should mention that. I think there is a small sign there that says this is a replica. Markers in Virginia, these state markers are administered by the Virginia Department of Historic Resources, which is a state agency. And so when you apply for a marker, you indicate where you think the marker should go. And of course, that's subject to, you know, some other folk weighing in on it, like Department of Transportation and safety concerns and so on. But when we filed the application, we actually indicated that we thought that the marker should go adjacent to the replica, because we thought it would be uh, interesting for folks to see the replica. Mm -hmm. But 
Later on, we figured out that nobody would see it there. In other words, if when you continue, um, how can I say, going into the village of Deltaville and headed towards Stingray Point, in other words, you're headed down toward the bay, it's a one way in, one way out, and you it's a destination. I mean, it's not somewhere that you pass through or pass by. Mm-hmm. And few people go as far as the replica of the lighthouse, relatively speaking. Right. Um, and so for that reason, we... Um, thought differently of it as the process uh, you know, was being put together and decided that it should um, uh, be where it now is. And of course, it's interesting, we um, having abandoned the first place, then we went with the Department of Transportation representative and selected a second place. Well, it turned out that the second place, when they did all the checks they needed to do, had a right-of-way problem uh, as far as DOT. And so the DOT representative recommended that the um, marker be put where it is. And we just love the placement. I mean, it is just, you know, sometimes things just really work out the way they should. And so actually there are two Captain John Smith markers. Um, And of course, you know, the Virginia marker program is uh, was formed in the 1920s and so they've been putting markers for years and so originally there was a captain john smith marker put about eight miles from deltaville and stingray point and then more recently in contemporary times there was a captain john smith marker put actually in deltaville and so this marker occupies a green space our stingray point contraband right adjacent just feet away from the Captain John Smith marker. And so it's really good because when someone stops to read, then they get a chance to understand uh, the significance of Stringray Point broadly for history. Mm -hmm. And they see the juxtaposition of the one marker and the other. So it's really, um, we're very pleased with the the placement. Uh, Incidentally, I'm here on the New Hampshire seacoast and just a few miles from me out in the Isles of Shoals group of islands up here, there's a monument to John Smith who explored those those islands and uh, briefly named them Smith's Isles, but that name didn't stick. But uh, sure. You mentioned a a little while ago that the those six men uh, eventually enlisted in the U.S. Navy in, uh, I believe, September 1861. Do we know anything more about what they experienced in the the years following that, what their Navy experience was, and also what happened to them after the war? Um, Yes and no. Mm -hmm. We have been able to see Navy records on, uh, on a limited basis on all six of them. You know, we have some concepts of the ships on which they served. I think one of them may have been on three or four different ships during the war, one actually did his time in the Navy and then joined the Army. And so we know a fair amount. And of course, this is in the um, official Navy records at the National Archives, in the National Park Service records. We mm-hmm. pick up, we know something about the Navy careers of each of the six of them. Um, know more about the Navy careers of some than others. So, but yeah. each of the six. What we don't know, and it is truly remarkable, we don't know about the afterlife. In other words, what happened after the Civil War? David Harris, who is the one of the six whose family brought the story to our attention, he's the only one 
who seems to have come back to Middlesex County, which is Deltaville is in Middlesex County, and became a very, very productive member of the community, landowner, uh, early member of one of the first of the first black church in the neighborhood. And in fact, his uh, some of his descendants still own some of the property that he acquired um, doing reconstruction. And so we know a lot about David Harris. And what's interesting is that we don't find, so David Harris has a pension file and uh, Civil War pension files are just treasure troves of information because so much information was collected probably that was unnecessary to determine one's eligibility for a pension, but because they collected so much information and it's family history, community history, and there's so much there in a pension file. So David Harris has a pension file. His wife had a, has a widow's pension file. So we learn lots about him and the community. We do not find a pension file for anybody else, not the other five. Hmm. Um, and of course, you know, the, I don't know whether you're familiar, familiar with the fact that the 1890 federal census was largely destroyed. Just a few counties are left nationally. However, there is an 1890 veteran census. And we find, again, David Harris is the only one that appears in the veteran census. So we don't know what happened to the others. We um, put together a research team of fairly experienced researchers. And for over a year, we've tried to, we really thought when the marker was approved and it took about a year to get it installed, we really were confident that we would find the descendants at least of some of the other five. Right. But uh, that's not been the case. And of course, we um, will continue to look because we're now our in interest is sweated. We really would like to. I mean, it's just so bizarre that yeah. five people disappear. I mean, we know as researchers that sometimes you just can't find somebody anymore and they disappear. They drop out. But five of them, we've not been able to find them after the Civil War. A question just occurred to me uh, about how old were these men when this this incident happened in 1861? In part, we don't know. Mm -hmm. My recollection is that David Harris, about whom we know a fair amount, was probably in his late teens. I'm not looking at it, but probably about 19 at the time. Mm -hmm. um, by and large, we do not know. I think that someone is listed as 30, one of the of the other five in the um, Navy record, but we have limited information. Um, yeah. We do know in the Navy record it says who enslaved the each of the each of them, and it's what is another interesting piece is of the um, six men. There's David Harris, one is Alexander Franklin, and then the other four all have the surname Hunter. Um, and so, of course, that makes you wonder what connections and the four hunters, though, are not enslaved by the same enslaver. Huh. Uh, of course, it's all in the same community. And then yeah. recently we found an article in the New York Herald that's dated just a few days after the Stingray Point incident. It may be dated the 20th of July, 1861, mm -hmm. in which Alexander Franklin was interviewed and he indicates that the hunters are brothers. And so we have no further information than that. Um, but we, um, it's just an enigma. We really have 
found little information about the other five sailors. I read in a couple of articles about the dedication, uh, and you sent me the program, which I really appreciate. And I read something about uh, something called uh, libation that was done as part of the, yes. the dedication ceremony. Can you explain what that is? Ah, uh, yes. In many West African cultures, libation is poured at the beginning of any undertaking. In other words, if we're starting out on a trip, if we're beginning a venture or whatever it is we may be starting, then the idea is that the presence of the ancestors is invoked. And so it's a spiritual piece that the ancestors, those gone on before, are being asked to assert presence in a spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. And it asks to look with favor upon that which is to be done. And that is a practice in many, many African west african cultures and so you know again most of us uh you know in virginia our families um black folk have been in virginia for so very long that many african retentions we have missed but as we have learned our culture and recaptured so to speak then the pouring of libation is something that um many of us always do whenever we begin something. So that's what that's about. And you're, you're actually pouring what could be spirits onto the ground or um, water or whatever that liquid is. And it's typically poured into the ground. And of course, when we do it inside a building, then we have a vessel that we pour into and then we go out and get it back to the earth afterward, the stingray point, we thought, okay, so we are outside, but if we pour this right here, we're gonna make mud where somebody's <laughs> gonna slip and fall. So I think that we take license here and we pour it into the bowl and then into the ground. So that's what we did, but that's what we're invoking the presence of the ancestors. And it's so funny newspapers are published things that are not always correct so in one newspaper um, the, what was published was when that i had spoken we had revoked the presence of the ancestors and i thought we're revoked not exactly <laughs> revoke but uh invoke but anyway, uh, yeah somebody may be wondering what on earth and did she really say that no she didn't are they in right they didn't know the the meaning of the word maybe so, well that's beautiful so it's, it's a beautiful tradition i love that so, and as I believe you mentioned earlier, you had uh, descendants of David Harris there as part of the, the event, right? Did they actually, they were, I think, involved in the unveiling, is that right? Uh, yes, they were. In fact, we had three great-grandchildren of David Harris present, mm -hmm. and I think one maybe, maybe have some mobility <laughs> impairments, so she did not actually, uh, you know, tug the cover to remove, yeah. so two of them did. Uh, Dave Lentalaferro and one of her cousins, whose name is Ceres Brooks Gillis, I believe, they were the two that actually removed the cover from the marker. And then we had, I would say, about a dozen David Harris descendants present. So there were then double great grandchildren and triple great grandchildren. And so, and then other relatives. It's a very, um, interconnected community and so there were any number of people there who are collateral relatives if somebody maybe somebody just sort of accidentally stumbles upon it and sees, sees the marker and reads it or maybe somebody 
seeks it out. But in any case, what what do you hope that that people take away from it, from the experience of uh, reading about this story? Well, you know, aside from, first of all, getting some uh, concept of Stingray Point, I was talking to a person who, from a different part of Virginia, and when I first said, we you know, in uh, Virginia fourth and seventh grade, Virginia history is where they taught such things. At first I said, you probably learned about Captain John Smith. And at first she said, uh, no, I didn't. And then as I started to talk about Captain John Smith being stung, she said, oh yeah, I do remember that. I said, but you didn't learn you know, about the Stingray Point contraband. And no, she didn't. And so just the fact that folks learn that piece, we get a sense that we didn't get the full history. But the other piece I think is important is we think of uh, enslaved people being freed through someone else's action. And I'm sure there was some of that. I mean, you know, we know Robert Carter manumitted about 500 people and, you know, somebody freed the enslaved people in a will. But oftentimes for enslaved people were freed through their own actions. Mm -hmm. We look at all the runaways. We look at all the now, and we probably didn't know about the contraband who um, then freed themselves. And so that, I think that's just a wonderful takeaway point that we learned that folks took their own uh, futures, took their futures into their own hands and, and acted. Yeah, that is that is really, really an important aspect of it. And, uh, you know, a story like that, it's a it's a window into history, of course. And uh, you talked about some of the context of it. And hopefully it will whet people's appetite to learn more about this. And that's really one of the neat things about studying lighthouses. You know, there's so many aspects of history related to lighthouses Mm -hmm. uh, and this this being one of them. And uh, I just that's one of the things I really love about studying lighthouses because not just the lighthouses themselves there's the stories of lighthouse keepers and their families that are absolutely fascinating uh and you know there's some interesting stories of african-american keepers in the chesapeake region the first uh, african-american keeper lighthouse keeper in the country was at cape henry virginia oh really yeah yeah so there's Mm -hmm. some some fascinating uh, history in that region but uh, again, this is uh, really a window into to so much history. And uh, I just think it's wonderful that you've. Yeah. You know, something we learned that I learned at the dedication that others probably knew is one of our speakers at the dedication is a woman named Sylvia Cyrus, who is executive director of the Association for the Study of African-American Life History, or SALA, which is the group formed by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who was the founder of what was Negro History Week, Negro History Month, but now Black History Month, and ASALA is kind of the premier African-American organization in terms of history. Mm-hmm. Well, Sylvia, um, we were had the opportunity to invite her because she does have roots in this Deltaville community. Well, what we learned is that her relative was actually the assistant lighthouse keeper in the 1880s. And so that, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of connections there in the area. But that's a piece that we didn't know. And we're hearing of uh, lighthouse keepers and persons who were, you know, employed in that way. Besida, it's such a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, it was so interesting finding out about this story. You know, I'm honored to have this chance to speak with you today. Hope I can get down there and see the see the marker sometime in person. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I, as you mentioned lighthouses, I feel compelled to mention to you that the Deltaville Maritime Museum yeah. uh, in Deltaville, Virginia, is about to open an exhibition of lighthouse images. Um, and I believe they are from the Chesapeake, uh, but there are, I think there must be sketches, um, but okay. they've been gifted um, a collection and they're about to open an exhibition. So yeah. um, definitively may want to check that out. Very glad you mentioned that. And I'll just add one more note to that. You, you're probably aware that, uh, the, of course, the Stingray Point Lighthouse was what we refer to as a screw pile type lighthouse. The, the base uh, has like legs that are kind of screwed into the, the bottom there. And mm -hmm. uh, the upper part was referred to as the cottage. So it's a cottage style screw pile lighthouse. There were a bunch of those on Chesapeake Bay at one time. Mm -hmm. They've all been removed, including Stingray Point, except for Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse near Annapolis. Mm. Uh, which is maintained by a chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, and you can take tours there. So that's very much like Stingray Point. And, uh, well, that is good to know that that one's still there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. So again, thank you so much for your time today. It's just a fascinating story, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Poseida. Okay, well, thank you so much for engaging with me. I appreciate it. The Middle Peninsula African American Genealogical and Historical Society has a website at mpaagenealogicalsociety.org. There's some interesting history and genealogy resources on the site. We have a second guest today. Michelle, please help me introduce Donald S. Murray. Donald S. Murray was born and raised in Ness in the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. He's written 14 books and published countless essays, columns, short stories, and poems in a variety of publications. His writing, both of fiction and nonfiction, has received widespread critical acclaim and numerous literary awards. As a native Gaelic speaker, Donald's voice can often be heard on BBC Radio's Scottish Gaelic language radio station. He's appeared in many TV shows, including The Last Seabird Summer, which examined the decline of seabirds in the North Atlantic. Donald also speaks at book festivals and conferences around the world, including the University of Reykjavik in Iceland, the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland, among many others. In 2020, he was elected as a committee member of the Society of Authors in Scotland, which protects the rights and interests of authors. After 30 years as an English teacher, Donald became a full-time writer in 2012. He now lives and works in Shetland. In his new book, For the Safety of All, Donald explores Scotland's lighthouses through history, storytelling, and the voices of the lightkeepers, from ancient beacons to the work of the Stevenson family of engineers and the Northern Lighthouse Board, and from wartime strife to automation and preservation, the lighthouses stand as a testament to the nation's innate connection to the sea. It was a great pleasure to speak with Donald S. Murray recently. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with author Donald S. Murray, and he's at his home in Shetland. I'm here on the New Hampshire seacoast. We're speaking through the magic of Zoom. Donald has written a really wonderful new book called For the Safety of All about the Lighthouses of Scotland. Thanks so much for joining me today, Donald. It's a great pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak to people on the other side of the Atlantic from me. Likewise. Uh, I personally got to visit the area around Edinburgh on the Firth of Forth in uh, 2017 when I was with the U.S. Lighthouse Society tour. 
I uh, really gained an appreciation for the lighthouses in that area, the lighthouses of Scotland. Uh, we even got to visit the uh, Northern Lighthouse Board uh, office in Edinburgh, and they gave us a presentation. So it was, it was a really great experience. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back and see more of Scotland, see more of yeah. the coast, and your book certainly makes me want to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful book. The whole package is just just great. Your writing, uh, the fact that it's not just about the history, but it's kind of a personal journey as well. The design of the book, all the illustrations and everything, I just highly recommend it to everybody listening. So before we talk more about the book, uh, I want to ask you a, what I think is kind of a simple question, but you're a native uh, Gaelic speaker. Yeah. Can you tell me how to say lighthouse in Gaelic? Yes, that's very easy. Tyholish um, is how we would call it, you know, at all times. And the one I grew up on was, you know, normally they would call it the Butter Lewis Lighthouse. But most of the locals called it Rua Rohanish, you know? Well, I'm not going to try to say that. <laughs> but right. it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful language. Thank you for that. What led you to write a book about lighthouses? I, I'd always been interested in them. I think I, I first picked up a book about lighthouses when I was in my 20s. And I remember reading that with uh, great interest. It was all about the Stevenson family. And, of course, I read Bella Batter's book, The Lighthouse Stevenson's too. But I suppose, you know, the greatest part of my inspiration was geographical. I stayed not far from the Butter Lewis Lighthouse, which was just along the coast from me. And every time we went down the family croft, you know, that's a strip of land that went down to the sea. We could see, I could see very clearly the lighthouse up on the peninsula there. So it was a major part of my life. All the other houses tended to be built in the same period. Uh, all the other buildings, you know, from, from about the 1950s onwards. So there was something actually quite surreal about the lighthouse on the horizon. You know, it was an amazing building, an amazing structure. From another time. Yeah. 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 Uh, so lighthouses entered your consciousness very early on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've visited lighthouses a lot in your, your life? I have. And sometimes just by chance. I stay in moment in Shetland and I look out my window just now and I can see Bressa lighters just outside the window. I stayed for a while in Stornoway and there's a lighthouse there. I stayed on the island of Benbecula and they're flickering through my window every day, you know, when I, I stayed there for over a decade, was the Monohyros lighthouses. So I think, you know, they've been following me. You know, I, occasionally yeah. I suffer the delusion that they've been haunting my existence. And again, you know, as part of my ancestry is, is, is Tyree, where the scary war lighters, probably one of the most impressive, you know, was on the rise. And so I've always, you know, I, I think that's, uh, you know, it's just been part of my existence. At the beginning of your book, you included one of your own poems. You yeah. are also a poet. Uh, the yeah. poem is called Exile, and it kind yeah. of speaks to your personal connection of uh, connection to lighthouses. Could you do me a favor? Could you possibly read that poem of for course, me? Yes. I've written a few lighthouse poems. Uh, they'll be coming out later on. So I did write a number of them, you know, in the course of writing the book. It, it was inspiring. But this um, is called Exile. And basically, it's about, you know, probably the time I stayed in Glasgow as a young student, where I missed the sight of a lighthouse on the horizon. Exile. It was the furthest inland that he'd ever been. And he missed the presence of a lighthouse beam that had always drummed before him like a pulse 
more persistent than the tide, that stink of bladder rack and delts stacked upon the shoreline near his home. Without the radiance of that tower, he often felt alone and longing for the cleaving of the wind, the cliff top on which that structure stood, where as a child he'd stop and tap out imitations of the rhythms of its light, flashing white every five seconds into immeasurable night. I love that. It's a beautiful start to the book, and to, to hear you you read it is uh, is pretty special. My light was no longer flashes white every five seconds. It was while I was growing up. That's uh, you know was its signal at that time. Nowadays, there's a kind of black. It's almost as if there's a, a layer of armor on the yeah. back of lighthouses, pre- preventing them from casting their glow on the land. Now, at one time, you know, it used to flash directly into our house. You'd see it. Yeah, you'd see it cover the entire district. And um, you'd also hear the foghorn blowing, which was an important part. I mean, uh, one of my memories, actually, the earliest memories of the foghorn uh, connects with a U.S. politician. It, uh, it connects with the, the morning after Bobby Kennedy was shot. And I remember we had very thick fog that day. Fog was quite rare in, in, in the Western Isles compared to Shetland. Mm. But you'd hear the blare of the horn. I remember going to the local post office and the, the men there all talking about the death of, of Bobby Kennedy. And underneath that, you would hear the drone of the fog horn, you know, which was kind of underlying the sadness of the event. So that's one of my early memories of, of the Butter Lewis Lighthouse. Yeah, it can be a mournful sound. There's no it doubt can. about that. Yeah. I think some people, a lot of people see a, or think of a foghorn as a, as a comforting sound. Yes. But it's definitely yes. got that mournful quality to Fort it. Too. Cute, yes, yeah. I think particularly that day, because, you know, the atmosphere was, you know, there was that kind of darkness on the world, you know? Sure, absolutely. I remember it very, very well. So let's move away from the the personal side of things for for a little bit, but yeah, uh, and talk about the lighthouses of Scotland in general. Of course, anybody who's studied lighthouses, and that includes a lot of our listeners, anybody yeah. who's uh, read about them at all, knows about the Stevenson family of engineers yeah. in Scotland mm-hmm. who designed most of Scotland's uh, lighthouses. What made the Stevensons so important as lighthouse designers and engineers? Not only did they have an idea of structure and architecture, they also had imagination. And so, for instance, you'll get Greek and Egyptian influences in some of Scotland's lighthouses. In Arnhemurchen, you have Arnhemurchen lighthouse, which I imagine is quite a hard word for Americans to say. You, You have the Egyptian influence. So I think... In that family, you can see why it produced Robert Louis Stevenson, why it produced other writers since then. There is an imaginative quality about him, which you don't tend to get in lighthouse architecture elsewhere. You know, predominantly very practical, pragmatic buildings. And what I think uh, you find with Stevenson is you have a degree of artistic flair in their creation. I completely agree with that. You devote a chapter in the book to the Museum of Scottish Lighthouses yes. at Canard Head Lighthouse in Fraserburgh. Yes, I did. Uh, 
I believe, actually the largest collection of Fresnel lighthouse lenses in the world. It is, and, and it's remarkable in, in lots of ways. So one of the pictures I have there has all these lenses around the place. And it is, it's, there's something quite Doctor Who-ish about it. It's quite a surreal place to go to with all the lights set. But it is also very, very informative. I found that, you know, the people working there, you know, uh, Linda McGuigan, who's the, the museum manager, and yeah. Strachan and Mike Cruikshank. About the three most informative people I had about the lighthouses that I met during all my time writing this book, they were incredibly patient, incredibly good. They took me around Canard Head Lighters, and, and I went up the steps of the lighthouse, and uh, they had the old equipment there. It's like stepping back again. I interviewed uh, Linda McGuigan and Michael Strachan for my uh, podcast, and uh, yeah. I totally agree with you that they're they're really nice people and so knowledgeable and yeah. so generous with their time. Yeah. Uh, they actually, uh, Linda used an iPad and actually gave me a little bit of a tour of some of the museum on Zoom, which is yeah. a lot of fun. Also in the book, you devote a chapter to Bell Rock Lighthouse, yeah. very iconic, uh, yeah. really in some ways the granddaddy, I would say, of uh, Scottish lighthouses. And the oldest uh, standing, uh, what we might call a wave swept tower, a sea wash tower, yeah rock lighthouse really spectacular i don't mean to answer this question for you but what, what's so special about bell rock lighthouse well again it is it is partly its history and when you go to uh you know turn of our growth and you see the signal tower there yeah. you know and that's part of the uh you know that's part of the whole atmosphere and the environment of that like that lighthouse there's so much that's distinctive you know i, I met a man called lawrence Tillow. He worked there for a number of years in Bell Rock, you know, off and on. And he he told me, you know, not only about its majesty, but also about its, sometimes its failings, how it was quite cramped of all the lighthouses, you know, in some ways, um, the, the, the most traditional and backward of all the lighthouses. But the fact that this structure has survived all this time, and there's a picture there of the base in my book, there's a picture of the base of Bell Rock Lighters, and there's barely a fissure in the rock. So it's a fabulous creation. You know, how they did that back then. 1811. You know, 1811. It's, it's just remarkable how they managed to achieve that at that time, given the limitations that they had on technology. It is truly astonishing. You know, it is, it is. absolutely astonishing. It's, it's mind-boggling, really. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the Signal Tower, which is a museum now at yeah. Angus. The, yeah. the uh, what would be called the shore station for Bell Rock Lighthouse. They uh, would send supplies out from there. They would communicate back and forth yeah. with the uh, the keepers and so forth. I interviewed uh, Caroline Taylor from the museum for this yeah. podcast. Yeah. And that's another place I really hope I can visit sometime. <laughs> uh, could you say just maybe a little bit more about the signific uh, significance of the Signal Tower Museum? There's a number of signal towers I've been to. You know, I'm probably more familiar with the one in Tidy. They also have a signal tower there where um, the, the light keepers used to find out if they had fathered a son or a daughter by um, hoisting up the, either a, the, a pair of pants or a you know a skirt. Clearly, it was a way of you know communicating with people at a time when you know. Unlike today, they didn't have Zoom 
or the internet or even or even the telephone. Yeah. So it was so it, it is remarkable and the whole structure is remarkable. Before we uh, started the interview here, we were chatting a little bit and one of the the uh, people we talked about is Ian Duff. So yeah. I, I think we have a, a mutual friend in, in Ian Duff. He's a former lightkeeper in Scotland. I interviewed him for this podcast. I yeah. met him uh, in 2017. I was yeah. there with the U.S. Lighthouse Society tour, and Ian actually spent a couple of days with us and talked Fantastic. to the group. And just a, what a treat to to hear yeah. firsthand stories of uh, lighthouse keeping and so yeah. forth. Uh, I was I was very fortunate, and he gave me a wonderful story, as I say, of the helicopter on Skerry Board. Ian told me that story in the when I interviewed him for the podcast. But yeah. uh, for people who might not have heard that, could you give a synopsis uh, of what, what happened? Yeah, that uh, I'll, yeah, I thought you might ask me that. So there was a friend of his, uh, one of the light keepers was actually injured. Ian and his friend Gordon McDonald, they had to take, the, the, you know, there was a small helicopter arrived to take this injured keeper off from Skerryvore. Now, I know Skerryvore, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, there's, there's only a small helipad. And when they landed on the helipad, a wave came along and damaged the helicopter. They had this astonishing problem. They had to make sure, for instance, the pilot was all right, was on the, uh, and the injured man were okay. And then they thought, if we don't lash down this, broken helicopter, then, you know, they're going to lose the equipment. So they lashed it down initially, called up, another helicopter was sent out. And this is way back in 1978. And they fashioned this extraordinary cradle of rope in order to carry uh, the, the smaller helicopter back to their base uh, in Oban. You know, so it was kind of miraculous, you know, to create, yeah. to create this cradle of rope and carry it about. And you know, they had to make sure that all the ropes were of the same length. Otherwise, there could have been two helicopters uh, down, you know. So um, it's an extraordinary tale. And when you consider, of course, the weather that affects places like Tidy, it's, it's amazing. It's almost miraculous that they achieved that rescue. Of course, this was at Scarryvore, and uh, Scarryvore is another one of the really iconic lighthouses yeah. of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to add about Scarryvore? What stands I, out for you? Well, I, again, I have family connections, uh, so I'm slightly biased. You know, uh, my uh, mother was brought up for a while in Balmartin and Tidy, so you know, uh, among my very early memories was her talking about you know the light keepers. Uh, cottages at Heinish, but I've stayed. I have stayed uh, on two occasions and um, also Skerryvore itself. Aesthetically, virtually every lightkeeper in private conversation will say to you, you know, what's your favourite lighters? And they'll all say, for aesthetic reasons, Skerryvore. There's one or two that they won't they won't pay compliments to, but they say there's something about the fact that it's made out of these wonderful rocks from the Ross of Mull. So it, it's it's a beautifully pink uh, kind of stone. That's the best. That's the nicest. Which, uh, considering it was being lashed about and bashed about by waves, uh, you know, it's, it's quite remarkable again. Ian Duff talked about being there in, in rough seas, high seas, and so forth, storms, and he loved to look uh, from the top of the lighthouse down at the 
the high seas must have been quite an experience. It's a beautiful setting. Tahiti is a quite low level island. It's uh, it's probably I think historically speaking, it's the warmest place in Scotland. Uh, so it just catches the Gulf Stream. The temperature is quite warm, but it's it's got this wonderful setting. There's you know mull on one you know side. So there's mountains of mull. There's the mountains of of rum and also uh, sky. You know, almost framing the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the surfing capital. I mean, my grandfather would be turning in his grave if he was if he was discovered that it's now the surfing capital of Scotland. Um, they call it the New Hawaii. So you can imagine Beach Boys songs being sung in great abundance. Wow, you know. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I don't surf, but still, I've got to get to to see see that area. Uh, yeah, uh, you also devoted a, a chapter in the book to lighthouses in wartime. Yes. I don't yeah. know if there's a particular story or two uh, is kind of in that category uh, you find really compelling. I found a number of them uh, compelling. I've, I spoke to a, a man called Peter Johnson. Peter was telling me about his great aunt, sorry, his aunt being killed uh, in the Skerries, you know, when, when a German plane came along and bombed the, the lighthouse dwelling. His father turned to him and his sister. You know, when they saw the plane coming, he almost pushed them inside the house. But he remembers the house being peppered by the rock of the lighthouse dwelling shortly afterwards, finding his aunt had been killed there. You know, I mean, Shetland seemed to be, of all the islands, and, you know, the, the Second War in particular, was one of the target areas. The Germans at one time did contemplate invasions uh, from the north, you know, from Norway. They would send flights over. I also met this woman who the other day who told me that her aunt had been killed in the Fair Isle lighthouse. And uh, she spoke about going there with her mother uh, for the first time ever to a spot where the aunt had been killed. So that was very moving too. Shetland, of course, was one of the places where Alan Stevenson argued that lighthouses couldn't be built in, in Shetland because it would have been too expensive and too dangerous to have lighthouses there. But again, war persuaded the authorities to pay for these lighthouses. It was the fear of a, of a Russian invasion at the time of the Crimean War that persuaded them to start building lighthouses in Shetland. Are you, how far are you from Sumber Ahead Lighthouse? I'm, I'm about probably seven or eight miles from Sumber Ahead Lighthouse. Sumpras, again, a very impressive lighthouse, which, uh, you know, set high cliffs. We were talking earlier about seeing puffins and kittiwakes and other yeah. birds. It's an amazing place to see that. It's an amazing place to see, you know, ancient buildings that are structured there. But it also had an important role in the wartime uh, because there were uh, kind of intelligence figures based and in some of the lighthouse, and it's how they spotted that the Germans were coming to bomb the ships in Scapa Flow in Orkney. Uh, it was Shetland that played a major role in that. Mm-hmm. Sumbra, particularly. So Sumbra ahead has quite the foghorn. It, it has. It, it, it's the only one now operating in Scotland. You know, it was used as a soundtrack for the film The Lighthouse. 
which I went to see, um, you know, a kind of very murderous film uh, on. Yeah, kind of <laughs> and, surreal, um, the movie, yeah, but I, I liked it. Yeah, so did I. It was a very interesting film, very chilling film. You know, and, and there were these tensions in Nighters. One of the uh, uh, stories I tell is, is, is a murder in um, Little Ross Lighters, which was took place down in, um, in the south of Scotland, yeah, in Galloway, where uh, one lighters keeper murdered another. Uh, I also had other information which I kind of set aside of other incidents in the history of Scotland's lighthouses where there were acts of violence of one keeper against another. These things did happen. And these things you know, quite naturally will happen if you put people, two or three people, in a confined place like a lighthouse coping with the weather and you know i don't know about you but uh, in america but certainly uh, here in scotland there's been during the time of covid where people have felt isolated there has been an increase in domestic violence and uh, in a curious way locking two people or two or three people up in a lighthouse yeah a recipe for yeah oh no doubt about it we have cases of that kind of thing in new england as well in lighthouse history you know, that was the exception for sure. You know, yeah, yeah. again, put put uh, two or th- three men together in, a, in close yeah. quarters in an isolated place through uh, the worst weather. Things yeah. can happen. Yeah, they better they better be compatible personality. <laughs> so I love uh, chapter seven in the book. The title of that chapter is "Life Within the Gates of Death." Yes, what a, what a great title. Uh, and uh, it's about shipwrecks and rescues yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. One of the stories that, you know, certainly was another feature of my uh, childhood was the Flan Niles. When I was uh, you know, a child, we, we didn't go on a car journey very often, but we would go up to the village of Briasclade, where, you know, the lighthouse dwellings for the Flan Niles uh, people were. So you were kind of familiar with that as part of, you know, as part of my childhood was seeing that building. We also used to try to walk the coastline of, of our island to see if we could catch a glimpse of the light and used to imagine that we had. Uh, the reason, <laughs> no, because I'm not sure we did, you know, to be honest. Uh, the reason that was such a, a, a kind of an important story for me in my childhood is that it was mentioned quite often in my primary school. Of course, the, the story of all oh, the final lives is that three men went missing during a storm there, and a yeah. poem by W.W. By Gibson, you know, kind of makes this great mystery of it. And he used to say, all of this is poetic license. There's no great mystery, he, he would say. And then what probably happened is to say, uh, would be that, you know, a piece of equipment went missing. Two of them went out to get it in the storm. They were swept aside. The other one went to help them. You know, yeah. So yes, that's that's what probably happened. So that's how the three men went missing. But of course, according to the Gibson poem, you know, chairs were upturned. There were three columns sitting where the more or less where the dead men should be. There was a whole mystery created out of it. And, yeah. and now, you know, there have been novels written. Uh, opera. You know, uh, opera. Yes, of course. Yes, Peter Michael yeah. Davis. And a movie. Uh, and movie, yes, all about the Plan Lyle story. There are a number of theories. A letter had been issued by the Northern Lighthouse Board about lost equipment that 
two other men may have been fined before that for losing equipment. Most of the stories that have been told about Slam Niles have a great deal of poetic license. Yeah. It's one of the better known uh, stories in the world, really. Of, of it is, actually. It is probably the, the best known story of, of all letters. Is, yeah, definitely sparks the imagination. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the imagination, you also have a chapter in the book on lighthouses in art, music, and yeah. literature. Yeah. Yes, uh, I have, yeah. I've read a fair number of, of novels about lighthouses. Uh, the one I found most interesting was Jeanette Winterson's novel uh, called Lighters Keeping. And it took me about three or four reads before I could really get into it. It, it was written almost like in flashes. And, you know, it so sort of imitated lighthouse in style. Yeah. It seemed to me to incorporate that truth in it that we know lighthouses because of their story. The story right. of men and women who would be on it. And also, if any incidents happened at sea nearby, I tried to illustrate that within the book. You know, that was in my head, I think, even before I started writing the book, you know, that to, to give stories of lighthouses in yeah. order to um, provide enlightenment or, illum- uh, or illumination to the lives of the people that were in it. You know, and so, for instance, every time I think of the Pentland first, uh, lighters. I think about the man, you know, who a Gaelic speaker from the village of Briascage, who just mentioned, who went down on a rope in order to, um, you know, save East German, uh, you know, those on an East German ship, you know, shortly after the the Cuban Missile Crisis. That, that story is in my head. Yeah, uh, you quote uh, Jeanette Winterson, who you just uh, mentioned, the the author. Uh, who said that people see lighthouses and the places where they stand in terms of the stories they generate. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and it's really, it's the people that brought these places to life. The structures are interesting to look at, but yeah. they're not, nothing without the people. I think people, you yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that uh, has changed lighthouses drastically in recent years is the removal of the people, of course. Uh, automation of lighthouses. How do you feel about that? Is that, is that good or bad automation? Uh, I think, uh, you know, everyone I spoke to certainly think that something has been lost, you know, through automation. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, are always limits in, in, in how technology observes. There are limits in how humans observe, but, you know, you know, one of the chapters I have here is how lightkeepers were great observers of the natural world, the number of birds arriving, you know, the structure of the rocks, you know, the movement of the tide and, and how the tide alters and changes. We don't have that anymore. We don't have that anymore. And there are disadvantages, particularly, you know, at a time, you know, when you know many believe that global warming is is occurring when uh, we believe that the uh, you know the seas are well, the seas are rising i think the, the lack of a human element not so much in the saving of people because i think we can do that in technology you know in terms of technology but the lack of observation of the natural world is i think really important it has a negative effect. That reminds me of something you say in the, the book, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but <laughs> something to the effect that it makes a, a lighthouse keeper special as an observer of our world. Yes, there is that role for them. They, they bring their own insights into it. Now, at the moment, 
if some of our landscapes are unpeopled, we lack that insight. Uh, insight. You know, we, we do not have that. They're out there on the edge uh, yeah. in so yeah. many ways. Yeah. yeah. Seeing things that most people wouldn't see. So why should lighthouses be preserved? Well, I think there are so many reasons for that. They are historic structures. We don't go around knocking our castles down. You know, uh, you know, throughout the north of Scotland, we have lots of castles. They are mostly kept upright. We need the insights into our past to recognise where we are today. And lighthouses are part of that. They're part of that. So we need them for that reason. We also, as I think, you know, people at sea don't always check up on maps to find out where they are. They don't check up on charts. They look at the horizon and they recognize where they are that way. That's true. And they don't necessarily trust uh, GPS electronics. No, no. Even, you know, in my car the other day, I was trying to get to some place. And, of course, I ended up at the back door and I couldn't find the way in. You know, we can't always trust technology. It doesn't yeah. I probably rely on GPS when I'm driving too much. And it, it, like you, it's got, sometimes it's gotten me to like maybe a street over from where I want to go or something exactly like that. that. Yeah. So it would be, <laughs> yeah, be a little confusing. Most Mostly yeah. it's very helpful. Mostly it's helpful, yes. Yeah. yeah. So any thoughts about what uh, the biggest challenge or challenges are facing uh, lighthouse preservation today? Uh, I, well, economics is always going to be a challenge. It's not the lighthouses themselves that you see being a problem here in Scotland. I can't speak, you know, for you know, your side of the Atlantic. Only it's the lighthouse dwellings. Sometimes they are in a state of disrepair. They have been sold to somebody who has not had the economic wherewithal to, you know, preserve them and look after them. So, you know, I see that in the coastline of Scotland. I've got, you know, these two in my head. There's Nice Point and Sky, and there is one of the oldest in, in, in Scotland, which is Ellenquas, or the Grey Island, in uh, Scarpe, uh, which is, I think, one of the first, I think, first four built in Scotland. The lighthouse dwellings around them are not, you know, they're in a precarious state. Mm-hmm. It, it's that, that that troubles me more than natural lighthouses themselves. They're generally being kept up very well by the Northern Lighthouse Board. Yeah, we have a, a similar situation over here where a lot of lighthouses have been auctioned to private owners in, yeah. in recent years and decades. And most of the owners are very conscientious and do a really yeah. good job. But there are yeah. cases of them just being neglected since they were sold maybe five, 10 or more years ago. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely a, that's definitely yeah. an issue. It's, it's definitely an issue, yeah. Now, I know you've written about many other things. Uh, yeah. What are some of the other things you've written about that might relate to the sea in some way? I've written quite a number of, of um, books about the sea. I grew up surrounded by it. You know, my father had been in the, um, the Royal Navy during the war. My grandfather had been in the Royal Naval Reserve. But both my grandfathers were involved in, in the war at sea. So I've always been conscious of that. And um, I've written a number of books. I've written a book, uh, We Gannet, Where I Come From. I don't know if you know that. You eat gannets, is that what you said? Yes, yes. You eat them. I know what gannets are. I didn't know they made uh, good uh, eating. We, uh, we're the only part, uh, the only part of Scotland uh, that's allowed to eat uh, gannet chips is Ness and Nero Lewis. Uh, a picture there. I, I, I've got a picture in the book of Soulskirt, where it's where uh, the men from Ness go out 
to hunt gannets every year. So I've written a book called The Guga Hunters, which is a factual book about the sea. I've written a book uh, called Herring Tales, because again, you know, a lot of my aunts were worked on the herring. They were herring girls, you know, cutting the herring. I have um, also written two novels, one which has been very fun, you know, actually very successful, which is called As the Woman Day Dreaming, is about uh, the Isleair tragedy in my native Isle of Lewis, where um, the ship bringing the men home from the First World War on the 1st of January 1919 mm-hmm. was sunk a mile from Stornoway Harbour and 208 men were killed. Now, clearly that had a traumatic effect on you know, quite a small island community, uh, you know, with people being, you know, men and women who found their husbands and sons, you know, lying on their own shoreline, having survived the conflict, you know, having survived four years of conflict. So I've written that, that book, won the Paul Tordy Prize and, and a number of other awards. Uh, so that book did extremely well. And I've just written another one uh, this year, along with my lighthouse book, which is called In a Veil of Mist, which is about how new Americans, Canadians and British tested biological weapons off the coast of Lewis, not far from where I grew up. Uh, so... That is a novel that I, again, I wrote in the, in the last year, which is published in the last year. I have one more question for you, and this is this is for bonus points, okay? <laughs> okay. What was your favorite aspect of working on your book about lighthouses? Uh, I think it was going out and talking to people. I knew that writing this book, I would have to, in the sense, I went into lockdown before the rest of the country I went into lockdown. I went to the village of Lakar and I worked away there because it wasn't going to be possible to write it from my home in Shetland. You know, that was that was inconceivable. I had to be in a position where I could easily travel. So uh, I did that. But there were real pleasure in speaking to people, you know, like, you know, um, you know, all you know, those I spoke to on the phone, you know, the the life people should name to mention, you know, men like Peter Johnson, who was just wonderful company too, just going out and talking and walking around with people. Um, that was that's always a delight. And and you know, as I say, I, I think in order to be a reasonable writer, um, it, it certainly helps to be a reasonable walker. Yeah. <laughs> there is a rhythm to to uh, I mean a lot of the time I get my best ideas away uh-huh. from the laptop screen. It's when I'm out walking. Yeah, I completely understand that. You know, during the the pandemic, is that I've uh, I started walking more and more, and I also yeah. lost a lot of weight and feel great. And I, I kind of <laughs> wow. took advantage of the pandemic in that sense. So yeah. got yeah. more in the habit of walking every day, and I agree with you. It kind of gets yeah. the brain. Brain work. Work, get a brain working. There's no data with that. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with you more about how the best, uh, I, I understand how you're saying the best part is uh, talking to the people because that's how yeah. I feel about doing the podcast. So Donald S. Murray, I want to thank you again for spending this time with me today. It's really uh, such a pleasure. Uh, again, your book is, is really one of the best lighthouse books I've run across in a long time. Uh, again, your, your writing is beautiful, uh, really pleasant uh, to read. 
include, you know, I love the fact that you included your personal journey. It's not just the history of the lighthouses. It's interwoven really nicely and uh, beautifully put together book. And I, I recommend it very highly to everybody listening. And I hope we can talk again. Maybe we'll meet sometime if I come to Shetland. I'm hoping to do that uh, one of these the years. The door is open and the kettle will be on, you know, which is, you know, so you're, you're more than welcome. Yeah. Oh, that sounds sounds great. Thank you so much, Donald. I really right. appreciate it. You take care of yourself. Okay. I'm going to say that in my other language. I said, I've been very happy in your company today and I enjoyed every minute of it. You can learn more about Donald S. Murray and his books on his website at donaldsmurray.co.uk. His book for the safety of all, The Story of Scotland's Lighthouses, is available from Amazon and other online booksellers. As always, we thank everyone associated with the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. Check out uslhs.org to learn more. Connie Small, who lived at lighthouses for 28 years with her husband Elson Small, wrote in her book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife, I quote, May the sunrise give you hope and inspiration, the sunset, the comfort of a day well spent, end quote. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.